Welcome to the Doing Epic Stuff podcast with your host, Mike Johan. Together, we'll explore the stories and journeys of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. But I think that's one of the important things about having a project like this is to not have an objective, to have an intention, but not an objective. I think there's a big difference there. My intention was to explore what would happen if I started liberating these lost cat posters. But I always think that if I have an objective, if I don't have an objective, then the project is in charge and the project is going to lead me to interesting places that I, my brain would never have taken it. So my job is just to give it air and water and support and see where it goes. And that's, that's what the lost cat has done. Steve Chapman is one of the most interesting people I've had the pleasure of meeting during my time on Earth. The Not A Lost Cat Project is a prime example of the weird and wonderful pastimes Steve engages in. A hand-painted reproduction of an original, actual Lost Cat poster. Steve has now personally reprinted and reissued his reproduction to hundreds of intrigued individuals across the globe who've then gone on to display the poster in almost every country on Earth. I'm 100% serious. The Not A Lost Cat poster world map is in the show notes. A former TEDx speaker, prolific creative, and holder of an MSc in organizational change, Steve's professional life began on a very different trajectory. Having been convinced by the commonly held belief amongst his secondary school teachers that his difficulties in learning, love of wacky doodling, bizarre storytelling, and ad hoc creating, oftentimes during math class, weren't really applicable skills to a respectable adult life. Essentially, he just wasn't all that bright. This episode is an exploration of untapping our creative potential. Can we detune the fixed way we see the world? How much of what we do is actually who we are or just a product of social constructs? And what happens once we start to challenge them? What is the improviser's mindset? And how has Steve leveraged it to create some of the most interesting and audacious projects you've probably never heard of? I hope you enjoy this unreal episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. Steve, thank you for joining me this evening, my time, this morning, your time. What time is it in uh, your neck of the woods, Steve, please? In just outside of London, it's 7.39am, which that just took me back to my radio days. It's 7.39am <laughs> just outside London. It doesn't matter what time it was, I always used to say that, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome to have you on the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. I love that this is kind of just a product of, of something random that happened to me when I was online learning things and it one thing led to another and then I engaged with you through Twitter and here we are. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a wonderful byproduct of, of the digital economy and digital era that we can do stuff yeah. like this. Um, Steve, I might just cut kick off with a little bit of a, a, a bit more detail of the backstory, right? As to how yeah. this thing has come to fruition. So I was on an online community building sprint. So basically what that is, is you hang out with people, maybe 30 people across the globe, you get up early each day. And for an hour each day, you learn about online community building. And that's for me quite interesting because I've got doing epic stuff, the podcast and my bigger vision is to have doing epic stuff the i guess the community 
where I'm actually doing and building and collaborating with people and creating in a more active manner rather than just here's some passive podcast content. It's great, but it's not really kind of able to create anything in and of itself. So going along with this community building sprint, having a great old time, one of the first things we had to do was an introduction section where we kind of talked about things that uh, random stuff I'm into. Let's put it under that heading. And, you know, you know, someone was on about like, oh, I, I like online puzzles where there's like a, uh, you have to find the way out of a secret room through Google Excel spreadsheets. I thought, well, that's pretty crazy. And the other person would be like, oh, I like to DJ. And then and then one person was like, well, I'm in I'm actually into this at the moment. I'm into this particular project about this gentleman who creates cat posters or creates posters about a cat which isn't lost. And she pasted the link in this uh, community. So this thing had already penetrated into strange, weird niches of the of the internet. Um, I followed that link afterwards because I was like, that is strange. Like as far as I, I like, I see some strange stuff, but that sounds strange and intriguing. And this journalist, Ellie O'Brien, who is based in Cork, Ireland, had written this amazing write-up about this project of yours. Um, the, the, the strangeness of it was just so like alluring to me. And I think this is probably what has captured people's imagination. So we've connected on Twitter. You are super affable, had a, had a quick chat uh, through there. And we're happy to meet up and do this podcast. So I think probably to give this a little bit more context, maybe Steve, if you can just explain to me what the, what the Not A Lost Cat project is and how yeah. it came about, please. Thank you. I didn't know that backstory. So that's lovely to hear that just now. And I think that sums up my life. And I think that sums up what's magical and wonderful about life is setting these random hairs running and just seeing what happens. But this project, the Not A Lost Cat project, um, it started like everything does. It's just a curious question. And I was out walking my dog in the woods, which I do every day or pretty much every day. And in the distance, I saw a lost cat poster. And it was a little bit off my route. And this is an important part of the story, I think. It was a little bit off my route. And I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll just carry on. But I thought, no, there's something about that poster that looks intriguing. So I walked. I mean, it was like 30-second detour. But you know what we're like as human beings? It's like, no, no, that's, that's too, too far. <laughs> Particularly if you're a Londoner. You go, you're like a crow, you go everywhere in straight lines. <laughs> and so I walked over to it, and there's a poster, and it's really sad. Someone's lost their beloved pet. So that's the thing I always say about this. This is genuinely someone's lost cat. I don't know what happened to it. Um, but what struck me was the picture was amazing. It's like a mountain lion type thing. Like this big, proud cat with massive pointed ears, and it was slightly cross-eyed, and it was standing really proud and tall. And I just thought, what, a, what an incredible cat. And then at the bottom of the poster, it said, take a photo of this poster to keep on your phone and show your friends. Obviously to help find the lost cat. But my imagination, and it's a gift of dyslexia, that it just runs off in that, without me wanting it to, just went off on a tangent that thought, I wonder if this cat's really lost or the owner's, maybe the owner's just really proud that he's got such a brilliant cat that he wants everyone to have a photo of it on his phone. You know, like people that are really proud of their kids. Yep. And then all the way home, I kept on doing that. I was thinking, well, I wonder if, I wonder if there's a whole thing there of just people that are proud to, proud of their pets and pretend they're lost just so people see them. And I got home and I thought, I just want to paint a picture of that cat. And so I got out my 
painting my paintbrushes and painted the picture. And to cut a long story short, turned it into a poster that says, um, that looks like a lost cat poster from a distance. But when you get up close, it says, this is not one of those posters about a lost cat. Something like, my cat isn't lost. I don't even have a cat. I just wanted to show off my painting of this magnificent beast. Um, and the bit lost cat is in big red letters. So from a distance, it's like, ah, oh, lost cat. And there's a big thing that says reward, £300 in big letters. It says, reward yourself and buy this painting for £300. And it was, I just did it because I paint and draw every day, all day when I'm not out and about. And I stuck it on Instagram and loads of people loved it. I said, oh, can I buy a print of this? So I made some prints and they sold out. And I thought there's something, I don't know why people are enjoying this so much. Um, so I made a load of posters um, and stuck them all around London, sort of the east end of London, the sort of street art vicinity. And I kept getting loads of messages from people saying, this is amazing. Can I have some posters? And then a London journalist picked up on it. And again, it's there's part of me, and this is a theme in all of my projects. There's the sensible adult part of me going, leave it now. That's it. Move on. Do something productive. And there's another part of me going, no, 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 no. This is just beginning. Um, and that bit always wins now. That, but the, the sensible adult bit just goes, oh, not again. Um, so where it really took off is I put on my Instagram page, anyone that wants one of these posters, I'll send you two, well, I'll send you two for free, no matter where you are in the world, and um, one to put up and one to keep. Just send me a photo of it. And I thought, I wonder what will happen. And then I was getting loads and loads of requests for them. And all the money I made from selling the prints, I used to fund the postage. Um, and then they started going into different countries and, and different things. And then one morning I woke up and there was like 300 orders for these things. Um, and there'd been a little article about it in the Observer magazine in, in the UK, uh, the Sunday Observer magazine, like a tiny little thing. It didn't even say my details or anything, but people had Googled it. And so then I thought, right, I've got enough to start charging for postage for these. But where we've got to now is I've sent out over 2,500 posters. The Lost Cat is in, I think it's over 40 countries around the world, including East and West Coast Australia. Um, it's in all continents apart from Antarctica, but someone has taken one to Antarctica, but they're in radio silence now. Um, so I don't know if it's there or not. It's like Schrodinger's Lost Cat poster. <laughs> And that's it. And it just continues to spread. And what's wonderful about it is I don't, I don't, it's gone beyond anything I can control or see or know. So I hear those stories, those brilliant stories like you've said there, or um, people will just say, I've just come across this in one's, one's just arrived in Wuhan in China. Um, so just waiting for the photo of that. And that's what it is. It has absolutely no point to it. It started off with seeing a lost cat poster in the woods. Just, just a wonderful a wonderful thing to do i love that it doesn't really have any there's no real objective there is there other than just the the pure joy of knowing that somewhere out there there will always be a cat which isn't lost being yeah. advertised <laughs> across yeah. the world it might be the last thing that's left after the end of mankind it's your exactly future civilizations will think it was some sort of god that we worshipped was this not a lost cat or it's some Across some metaphor that yeah <laughs> we're not really that lost um i love it and the great thing is that I, I put some up in london i put some up at the royal academy exhibition which were obviously not supposed to in london but i can put them up and if people say you've put that up i say no i didn't it's like i've never been to i've never been to central russia 
uh, other people are putting these up now. <laughs> and I just, but I think that's one of the important things about having a project like this is to not have an objective, to have an intention, but not an objective. I think there's mm -hmm. a big difference there. My intention was to explore what would happen if I started liberating these lost cat posters. But I always think that if I have an objective, if I don't have an objective, then the project is in charge and the project is going to lead me to interesting places that I, my brain would never have taken it. So my job is just to give it air and water and support and see where it goes. And that's that's what the lost cat has done. It started to it started to slow down a bit now, which is good because uh, there's some days I was just spending entire days filling envelopes. <laughs> and it, it's so important to me that the envelopes are handwritten. I mean, the international ones aren't because I have to print off postage, but the envelopes are handwritten and it feels like it's personally from me and they all have a little note in them. And your beautiful but, little stamp. You've got a personal, like you've put a little yeah. uh, little Steve Chapman stamp on there. I, I'm looking yeah. at mine now and I, I was yeah. so, it's just such a, beauti a beautifully packaged thing. I haven't opened yeah. mine yet. So I've got no. four Lost Cat posters. Yeah. Uh, and I plan to be the first person in Melbourne, unless someone hears this and snakes me. But I plan to put up the first one in Melbourne, but I've held off because I, the first one I want to frame. I'm definitely going to frame yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. The other ones I was planning to engage the services of my nieces and nephews to help me out with this distribution plan. Yeah. In a way, kind of edging them towards their first ever act of significant public graffiti. Yeah. <laughs> kind of raising a little bit of like a, a fun thing, but also maybe a little bit of a moral question experience where yeah. we're kind of suggesting, you know, I guess, you know, rules are necessary in many circumstances, but some rules are somewhat or well, all rules are open to interpretation and application. So yeah. I feel like that that to me was the, was one of the means I've taken out of this because it's such a it's that kind of project where you can yeah. you can think about things like that. W was there any intention of, of raising that sort of exploration of structures and rules with this project, Steve? Only in hindsight. Um, again, this is the thing of I dis I'm discovering what this project's about as I go along, um, which I think is so much more wonderful. It's like just before we started recording, we were talking about improvisation. It's like Keith Johnson, who I trained with, says something like improvisation is a person walking backwards, looking back at where they've been. You don't know what's in front. But you're and that's what this project's like. And exactly what you've said, a few people have said that, that um, there was an edginess to putting up the poster. I mean, I've put up so many now, I'm sort of numb to it. That <laughs> it doesn't. But the first ones was like, oh, am I going to get arrested here? Um, <laughs> what materials do I use? Do I use blue tacks so it can be taken down? Do I use a tape? Do I paste it up so it, it's really difficult to take down? But it starts to, that's what some people are discovering in it. Yeah. And of the two and a half thousand, there's probably... It's probably at least 600 of them that I've never seen what happened to them. Either people, either they didn't arrive or people sort of lost their bottle a bit. But it starts <laughs> to explore that and it starts to explore that question that it's the difference between vandalism and graffiti, I think, or street art and, and vandalism. Um, mm -hmm. And I always remember um, my, my grandparents, both sets of grandparents lived in blocks of flats in, in central London. And I used to get really upset by the vandalism, like people just tagging stuff and people urinating in lifts and things like that. Mm -hmm. Not that that's vandalism, that's something else. <laughs> um, but it, it makes me think that if there's something that actually provokes a moment of joy or curiosity or wonder, 
is that is that really a bad a bad thing um i mean we could argue that um billboards are vandalism because they they are it's like paid attention it's trying to persuade us to part with our hard-earned money mm -hmm. whereas mm -hmm. the lost cat poster for example it's like the worst that's going to happen someone's going to say that's stupid um, <laughs> there's not really any harm done is there no but i did i did another project that was called the hunger for bridge gallery of outsider art in i think it was 2019 and i made a load of big wooden brightly colored cutouts um i mean they must have been about four for each and there's a railway bridge in central London between um, Waterloo Station, roughly, and Embankment on the other side that goes over the Thames. And next to the footbridge, there's a railway bridge called Hungerford Bridge. And there's an old plinth that has all these railings on it. It looks horrible. And I went up there really early one morning and put a couple of these wooden pieces on it. And I thought, oh, it's starting to look like a gallery. So I went up the following week and put up a sign saying, this is the Hungerford Bridge Gallery of Outsider Art, and added a load more pieces. And over the space of a couple of a few weeks, there end up being about seven or eight of these massive wooden pieces there, <laughs> labelled as a gallery, and it absolutely fascinated people because mm. there's about eight thousand people cross that bridge every day, and everyone you couldn't not see it, and then there'd be crowds of people around it, and people saying, "I don't know what this is," because I didn't put my name <laughs> to it, and for ninety-one, um, this is my claim, for ninety-one days, that became London's smallest and most visited independent art gallery. Oh, because people were crossing so cool. the bridge but it was i mean uh, that's not legal i don't know what i could have got probably could have got done for littering but it's that wasn't supposed to be there but it it created wonder it created mystery it created brightness and i i'd see so many messages on instagram because i'd stalk the hashtag for it saying this has brightened up my day every morning i'm going to a dull job and this cheers me up and reminds me that there's there's fun in the world <laughs> and eventually the council got rid of it oh. and it just looks like a shitty old plinth again now <laughs> but i think it's that same point we're saying with the lost cat poster is i'm interested in pattern interruptions of strange stuff that interrupts our habitual patterns of going through life and just makes us go huh? and that's that's what the lost cat poster is that's what this is i think that's what i want all of my work to do another yeah like a there's a there's a disruption moment there and yeah and, and that moment that you've created is is yeah. in and of itself that's really there's a richness to it because you're yeah. like this is this this would never have occurred without this no. funny little thing that i've done we, we um melbourne has had a real love-hate relationship with uh vandalism versus art versus graffiti we um we've had i mean i guess melbourne's kind of australia's try hard berlin I guess that's right. how you explain it, right? Yeah. So it's where the cool kids hang, very urban scene, lots of graffiti, great music scene before the lockdown situation happened. But we had some incredible pieces, just like not, not scribble, but proper art done across all parts of the city and train stations. We were really well known for it, I guess because we had so many international travelers who were talented artists coming here to lay down pieces. Yeah. <clears throat> and at one point, the Melbourne councils decided that they'd had enough and just like whitewashed the city. They, like, yeah. they just went over absolutely everything. And then somewhere in the vicinity of sort of eight to 12 months later, they realized that they painted over some really highly reputed artists work, which were drawing crowds. And they did a bit of a, a 180 and the city has since started to embrace 
uh, graffiti. We even have uh, Hosier's Lane. If you Google Hosier's mm. Lane, it's it's like a it's on the global map of of graph work now because it's constantly being uh, uh, I guess renewed with fresh artists. But therein lies the problem because now people are paying marketing companies are paying to be able to put up slogans and shit like that in yeah. Hosier's Lane where they know there's foot traffic. So that's now paid artwork, which is a totally different kettle of fish than that spontaneity yeah. moment that you were talking about, Steve. I mean, this it's, it's happened in London, so I guess it's happened in all cities. Same happened with busking, like authorised busking pitches. I don't know if you have them in, in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. um, it changes the thing. The thing was never the artwork. The, 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 it's, it's the, it's everything around the thing is what the thing was, if that makes any sense. It's, <laughs> it's the person doing it in an edgy way because they know they're not supposed to be doing it. People knowing that it probably shouldn't be there, but it's magical and amazing. And then as soon as it's legitimized, I mean, it can still be look beautiful, but the thing is different. The thing is slightly, slightly different. And they did it with busking. I use busking in the UK. You used to get buskers on the London underground, um, my brother went to um, art school in Liverpool and they used to go and visit him up there and used to get some absolutely crazy buskers. I just remember this, this guy we used to call Captain Beefheart. Um, that wasn't his name, um, but he just had this big hat on and he was old and he was really gruff and he used to have a little uh, cassette player and he'd just play music and he'd just dance to it going, <clears throat> and he was amazing. And then they, they'd moved everyone on. And even on the London Underground now, there are busking pitches that you audition for. Because I know someone that's been to the auditions and then you get the pitch. And it's missed that point. It's missed the point that it was just that organic nature of it. And then with those, with, with those disruptions as well, I think that there's something with the Lost Cat and the Hungerford Bridge Gallery of Outsider Art and all of my projects, I'm hoping that they cause some sort of disruption but it's a disruption that has no ulterior motive or points to it. That's, that's the thing. And that's the difference between it and advertising. Um, if it was the lost cat poster, go to this thing and you can win this, or this has been sponsored by X, it would change it, but it's just, this doesn't make sense. And there's no points to it. I think that's the magic in it. It's like this, I don't know why someone has done this. That, <laughs> and they're that not asking disrupts... for anything. It's just no. there. <laughs> no. And of course, there are um, there are advantages. So the Lost Cat poster, people order them, and then people dis might discover my work and then mm -hmm. stuff. like. I mean, it's led to this this conversation, and this conversation may lead to other things. But there's no, there's no ulterior motive to it. And I think there's a real potency in, in the pointless, in the confusing, in the discordant, in the... Um, in in confusion in those things um and that's yeah that's what i hope things like this do projects like this do but the moment it gets into the clause of being money making or to sell something or to persuade it loses that magic yeah i i, I tend to agree having had 15 years in the marketing industry myself i can tell you firsthand there ain't a shitload of magic there it's uh yeah. It's not really, it, it, yeah, it, it's hard to see the magic in kind of pretty blatant commerce, uh, yeah. especially when it's disruptive for the wrong reasons, jarring, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, which is kind of, that's the other end of the, the spectrum, isn't it? It's like, here's something disruptive because it's fucking awful. 
not because yeah. it's particularly interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm not, I, I mean, I don't know anything about the advertising world. Um, and I'm not wholly against it. They can create this and beautiful creations and Absolutely. beautiful art and beautiful pieces of filmmaking. Mm. What I'm saying is if it was that without any anything behind it, imagine if an advert came on TV that was amazing and it didn't say what it was about and you could never, ever find out what it was about ever. Wouldn't that be, that would be incredible. It would, <laughs> it would really confuse people and really create intrigue. Um, I remember when this shows how old I am, when the film Ghostbusters came out originally, which God knows how long ago that was, the Ghostbusters logo was put up everywhere around London without saying what it was. And I was a kid and I was thinking, I, I don't know what this is. What the hell is this thing? I mean, maybe the adults knew what it was. Maybe it said in small print, I don't know. <laughs> and that would have been brilliant if that was nothing to do with the film Ghostbusters. Someone just did that for so a bit. So people were just busting ghosts. <laughs> yeah, and you didn't even know what it was. It was just this... this picture of a ghost in a thing um but again the world is stacked against those real unusual subversive projects because i wouldn't be able to afford advertising space on a tv channel to do that so you have to have the money to be able to do those things and mm -hmm. it just means that you can't do them in that way mm. so it's like just in my own small way three thousand lost cat posters some bits of old mdf um on, on hunger for bridge <laughs> I love it. Steve, it strikes me that you've executed probably more ideas than most people could ever really dream of. I think you, you've, you've been a prolific creator. I think if when I look at your life, I go on your Instagram, you're, you're posting pieces of art almost daily, if not daily. Um, yeah, I think that is in and of itself really impressive. And to some people, a lot of people would kind of look at that, myself included, and go, Jesus, how have you how have you maintained this momentum for so long? So I guess my question there is, you know, where is this compulsion to create coming from for you? Have you yeah. always had it or is it something you've had to nurture? Where it comes from is, I don't know if I can answer that, um, but have I always had it? I think up until the age of 11, I probably had it. Um, I remember it up until the age of 11, I remember school, so primary school, I don't know what you'd call it in Australia, but primary school, that's primary, all, school. primary school. Yeah, oh, it's good to have similar terms. Um, at primary school, I used to write stories, I used to illustrate stories, I used to write stories about this character called Yappy Dog. And then the teachers would say, these stories are amazing. I go and read them to the younger kids. And the younger kids they would say, next time can Yappy Dog do this? And I'd go and incorporate into the story. <laughs> I used to write music and music in inverted commas um, and songs and all of that type of stuff. And and I remember going to secondary school thinking, this is it. These are my superpowers. This is what I want to do. Um, I wanted to work in radio. I wanted to, um, to draw, to illustrate, just to do all those things. And then I got to secondary school and it was like, no, 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 no. That was, that's all kids stuff. There's important things to do now, like maths and science and remembering how a roche moutonne is formed through glacial erosion. These are important things for adults to know. Um, and it was just like, oh, right, okay. Um, and then I remembered, like, I used to doodle in my maths book and then got told off for that. And that, that used to really help me with maths, to be honest, because I'm dyslexic and I struggle with numbers. Um, and so I just concluded um 
I wish I was more of a, a rebel then, but it was just, oh, no, I, I must be stupid. I'm a, I must be a strange child because I like doing these other things. So I just sort of packed it all up uh, metaphorically and concentrated on not being very good academically and left school and got a job in a factory. And that's that's testimony to the school that I went to. Um, I think it's testimony to how education works. And then also, I mean, the teachers are constricted by what they can teach and how they can teach it. And it was only sort of in my, and I always used to have little sidelines. So the, I used to do radio and write comedy for radio and things, but all all voluntary. I used to run nightclubs with my brother, um, uh, DJ nights and things like that. Um, but it was always a side thing. Mm-hmm. And then it was in my 30s, I suddenly thought, hold on a minute, um, what's going on here? Um, what, what happened to that kid that used to write the Appy Dog stories? And it's through quite a lot of sort of, uh, self-development stuff um, and then I went on to do a master's program that I started to really tune back into that so I think that the, the short answer is it's always been there but then it was in a deep freeze for what 11 12 I don't know 30 years something like that and it took me to sort of interrupt my own patterns of going to work, getting promotions, getting a job, the next thing, seek, seek the next promotion, get a little bit more money, then you might be able to buy a bit more stuff to interrupt that, to retune into it. And now it's this, I don't, I don't know where it comes from. Someone asked the other day around, where do you get the ideas from on Instagram? And it's just, how can you not? Everything <laughs> around you is an invitation. I mean, literally everything is an invitation. You've just got to detune the fixed way you see the world. And I'll just walk down the road and I'll, I'll see a bird that looks a bit sad. And I think, oh, why is that bird sad? Maybe it's sad because it just got fired from, from work for, for squawking too loud. And the other birds, <laughs> the other birds got annoyed with it um, because it was squawking too. And this keeps happening to this bird in life. And so this bird is thinking, what the hell am I going to do with my life? And, and, and there you go. There's a, there's a story there from just seeing a bird. And that's what I mean by it. It's, it's what Arnie Mindell called quantum flirting. It's not seeking inspiration, but it's allowing yourself to be open to hearing its whispers. Mm. It's allow, it, everything is it's around you all of the time. And it's why I, I sort of stay in an environment like the one you can see me in now. It's around you all the time. You've just got to let go and let it, let it come to you, I think. There's an awful lot of, of things vying for our attention isn't there just to to, yeah. to interrupt that or even put a little a little filter over the top of our ability to to perceive those things that are around us i think it's yeah. for some people in particular it's even more challenging to maybe that inspiration's there but they just can't seem they've got too much shit going on to to be able yeah. to to let that come into their into their world yeah i think it's uh... I wouldn't describe it as decluttering. It's recluttering in a different way. It's like allowing more randomness in, I think. Mm. Because because uh, novelty comes from random things colliding with each other or things that shouldn't be together. Um, and if, if we're distracting ourselves and if those distractions are quite uniform, then you're never going to get those random collisions. Um, and there's also a big thing there around anxiety. And I think it, it, we've gone... I don't know, 40 minutes without me talking about existential philosophy. So it's about time. <laughs> Fire away. It's, yeah. It's around, there's a whole thing there around existential anxiety and making our world seem more predictable and controllable and uniform and 
categorizable than it actually is. And to start to explore the, the unusual, the strange, the random, to let some of that in, I think it can, it can feel threatening in a way. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> if we really did spend the entirety of our lives thinking, right, I'm a strange, fragile, hairless ape on a rock that's flying around a massive, ever-expanding nuclear explosion in the infinity of the unknown, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to do anything. <laughs> so so there's, there is a, there is, there's a really important thing around managing our existential anxiety so we can function. But then there's there's that little edge of just letting a little bit more of that in, of just letting go a, a little bit, just to see what happens. There is a real risk of, of completely repressing that as we get older, isn't there? There's, yeah. there's the, because everything in society kind of suggests that we really don't need to be focusing on that or have time for that when there's so yeah. much more important things to do, like turning up to a nine to five and making sure that you're up on time and you're wearing your suit and all that stuff. Yeah. It's, yeah. It could be very easy to lose that. I'm sure in some time, in some points of my life, I've been further away from that. And now that I'm doing more of what I want to do, I feel like that there's a lot more of that in my life. I'm inspired yeah. more frequently by more things and more receptive to it because I'm not doing 10 hours a day in a job, which is taking up all of my awareness yeah. for other things. Yeah. Well, there's that. And there's the practical side of it that when I was in a, a, nine to five job is if I come up with an idea, I'd have to put it on a to-do list. Whereas now I can grab a pen or a paintbrush or a musical instrument or, or something and like act on it immediately. Mm. But I think there's another dimension there that you touch on. Um, so there's that sort of existential anxiety dimension um, that, oh, I don't know, it feels, it feels too risky to do this type of thing. But I think there's also a bit more of a political or a bit more of a sinister dimension there because it's not in the interests of those in positions of power. And I'm trying to make this apolitical. I'm just saying this general. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not in the interest of those in positions of power to fully liberate the imagination of everyone else because it would disrupt, wouldn't it? Imagine if everyone suddenly was liberated in that way of quantum flirting with the world and acting on their creative intuition and creating projects that disrupted in, in this way. It would be, it's not in the interest. So I think there's a a subtle suppression that no, 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 this is what a mature adult looks like in this type of job, <laughs> in this type of thing. Um, jump into that um, work consume cycle. The more you work, the more you can consume and the more you need to work, and the more you can need to consume. And then that's where your happiness lies. And it may be, it, it may be. Um, so I'm not judging that as wrong, but that suppressed this is this other side. And that can't help me think that, there is maybe not intentional, but there's some sinister undertones in that in dampening down this imagination. It's why it's why the arts are so undervalued at school. There's there's these logical subjects, mm -hmm. and it's I'm, I'm really interested in neurodiversity. Um, I'm on I'm the chair of the board for a dyslexic organisation, and I was reading. Um, I think it's called the Gift of Neurodiversity, the book. I can't remember who it's who it's by. And in that, the guy was saying, if you look at any special educational needs class in a school, the, the only reason the kids are in that class is because they don't have the abilities that is higher up in the hierarchy of value in that society. So to typically kids that struggle with English, math, science, literature and various behavioural challenges 
Whereas if society, the things that we valued, um, if rewind and just say it grew in a different way, we, we valued imagination, we, we, we valued randomness, then it'd be all the highly logical kids would be in the special educational needs class. So it, again, this is like evidence of what are the norms? Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in overthrowing society. It's just how do we throw in these pedals, uh, pebbles? How do we throw in these pebbles just to disrupt stuff to see what happens? From listening to you speak, Steve, it almost it, I feel parallels a little bit to, between what you're talking about and that movie, The Matrix, where yeah. you know yeah. a lot of us, and I've I've been a, in there myself, where you know if you do the same job or career for a number of years, it becomes very easy to accept that that is what you do and who you are and how you yeah. behave and and your whole world's defined by it. And I think people I've, I've been in agencies, marketing agencies, media agencies where, you know, people have been crying at work due to stress and yeah. after work telling me how much they love their jobs and it means to them. Yeah. And there was always that a disconnect for me there where I kind of thought, do you, do you really like it? Like, because if it's upsetting you so much, can can one cry one minute and love it the next? Or yeah. are you just so deep in this rabbit hole that you can't see any other you without being here? Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've probably been close to that, but kind of have recognized it at points in my life and going, okay, I think I probably need to adjust the balance more and do more mountain biking, more hanging out with people outside of this work circle, more travel, you know, so there's, I guess there's a self-awareness that, that, that can yeah. help pull you out of that a bit. Um, yeah. Do you, do you kind of, is that kind of, how does that sit with you? That Steve? makes, <laughs> makes absolute, that makes absolute sense. Um, and I, th this is the thing that only that person that's crying one minute and they're not crying the next minute will know. We can't possibly say you're, you're hiding something or you're not, or you're, you're, we can't say that it's for them to work out. But I think there's something around awareness beyond just thinking, beyond just what we're we're told. Um, I was reading something the other day that I'm going to misquote. I think it was Nietzsche was saying something about this idea of a, a slave morality, which is um, a morality in a way of living that's inherited and it's not necessarily real. Um but to start to explore that, we can't just explore it logically because that's the thing that's got us trapped in there in the first place. And I did a talk, um, it was like an online talk um, for NABS actually, which is a UK um, creative agency mental health thing. Mm -hmm. And it was called The Art of Creative Resilience. And that was talking about the number of different ways that we can build resilience through artistic practice, through listening to our bodies, through listening to our instincts. And so for that person that's that's crying one minute and not, let, let, I'd be interested in, let's not try and make sense of that with words and logic, but just to tune into what's what's happening in your body, what are you noticing in your sensations, in your senses? If you were to make marks on a page um, in response to those different emotions, what would that be? And we can make sense of stuff in that way. I think that's how we get unstuck. Because quite often we try to get unstuck by doing more of the thing that's got us stuck in the first place. Um, mm. And I think the, the thing for me is choice. So this is why I won't say um, I'm dead against people in a nine to five job that they go into every day. I mean, that's not that's none of my business what people do. What I'm interested in is do they is there a choice in that? 
or is there a sort of an obligation that's out of their awareness? And if there's a, if there's as much of a full autonomous choice in that, then fine. But exactly as you say, it's I think many of us don't realise that I'm not capping uh, capitalism bashing here. If if all of the if all of the human beings disappeared from the world for sixty seconds, so it's not a disaster or anything. Let's just say there's a glitch, and for sixty seconds they disappear. None of this stuff exists. Money doesn't exist. Words don't exist. This is what you do at a certain age. This is success and failure. None of it exists for those 60 seconds, which I, I love thinking in there. It makes your head hurt after a while, which means that we've constructed it, which means that it's a social construction, which means we do have choice. Now, it may be a difficult choice. One of the, the I wrote a little article around um, philosophies for lead. It was called Lightly, Philosophy, Lightly Held Philosophies for Leading a Creative Life. And one of them is to learn to live below your means. Because we can't, it, it's that trap of that work consume cycle. And this is how we do, um, this is how we, how we live that keeps us trapped. So there's some difficult choices to make in there as well. Mm. But I think once we recover those choices, it may be, I'd love to go off sailing around the world, um, but it feels too risky. So I'm going to stick in my nine to five job. And that's my choice. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's when we don't have that choice. I'm going off on a bit of a soapbox, but that, does that make sense? No, well, it does very much so in, in, especially with myself, like I, it resonates with me because the people who tend to be on the doing Equity stuff podcast are those people who have made that difficult choice. Yeah. That they're generally the people, whether I consciously try to do it or not, they're the people that I'm interested in, most interested in speaking to Yeah. and that, that making that choice and having the, yeah, the awareness to do that and then taking the next step and going to this crazy, yeah. whatever that thing is that wasn't you before, but you've done it anyway. You're extraordinary, let's call it. Yeah. Something you've given yourself license to do. That I think really excites me just in general. That, that that's yeah. like the, that's the thing that keeps me recording podcasts and interesting, meeting interesting people because I think that, that moment or whatever, whatever, it's a different moment for different people. Who knows what the impetus is behind making that change, but an awful lot of people never, ever, ever go there into that yeah. discomfort zone, which is yeah. buying that ticket to go over to South America or, or, or change even can be the context can be completely different. It could be even as simple as uh, I want to switch industries or write my first poem yeah. that that's sort of giving yourself license to do these yeah. things. Uh, yeah, I find that infinitely interesting. And it's a source of infinitely interesting people. I think we could take it right down to an even more tiny level than that. So there's all those big things around um, industry, changing industry, doing these big things. But it's like for people to explore, why do I walk down the same route to work every day? <laughs> and why why does it why would it feel like such a pointless thing or a risky thing to go else to get to just to, to see what's down that road? I've never been down. And just explore why does that, why do I feel inhibited doing that? Or to take it down even more, a thing that's always fascinated me is why do I stand, and it probably happens in every big city, why do I stand at the same place on the train platform every day? Why is that my place on the train mm. platform? The what happened if I stood a bit further down? Yeah. What if I stood? What if I stood where I know the doors aren't? And people... Because we then start to explore the subtleties. And I think it's in the subtleties that things get stuck. 
that things get sticky. Um, and then, then right down to, well, like minute by minute, this is what I typically do, just to contemplate what would it be if I did something slightly off? And to not necessarily do it, but just to notice the discomfort, even in those tiny things. Then I think we understand that how they accumulate over time, no wonder the big stuff's different, they're difficult. And there's nothing wrong with the comfort zone. This is a lot of the, um, I'm not a big fan of this, what I call the cult of optimism. This, here's your five steps to achieving these things and like feel the fear and do it anyway. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with comfort. Hmm. If, if, if we have full choice in comfort, there's nothing wrong with it. But there's also what, what I love about what you're doing with a podcast is you get to see behind the illusion as well, because, um, there's something around our oh, lost cat project stuff. I do on Instagram talks and all of that. Yeah. That must be great success rolling in money and happiness. And it's <laughs> of course not. It's probably the opposite. In fact, there was, there was a couple of months this year where I earned 30 pounds, um, which, which isn't, I mean, even if you translate that into um, Australian dollars, that's not a lot. And then also it, there's anxiety and stress that comes with it as well. So, it would be a lot easier to not. But I think where I've got to is tuning into the, those two voices I've said. The, the sensible, no, this is what you should do. This is this is the safe thing. This is a sensible thing. And then that more instinctive, nope, we're doing this anyway. What's happened for me is I've learned to trust that one more. So in that that month where it's, right, I've got 35 quid, that, that sort of doesn't really cover even a day of food and bills. <laughs> to trust that instinct, say, this is fine. Don't worry. This is this is somehow leading to something. It's going to lead to something. It's going to lead to something that means that that's not a problem. But it is. It does feel risky. It does feel there are huge ups and downs in it. And I think that's a really important thing um, to, that's not often spoken about. I, mm. I wrote a blog. Um, I think it was this year. I've lost track of all time. That was called Uninhibited Imaginings, and it was saying that I think one of the things the problems that we have with creativity as a society is we want the ups of it all. We want the, we want the highs of our imagination. We want the lost cat projects. We want the, the, the strange Instagram posts. We want all of that, but you can't nurture that dimension of your imagination without also nurturing the opposite, which is anxiety and, and worry and depression because anxiety is a manifestation manifestation of the imagination. It's, mm the imagining of something that isn't. And I think that's a really important thing. And I think it's where companies get stuck is you can't nurture one without the other. It's the same process. You can't apply conditions to your imagination and how it works and say, oh, no, I only want the good stuff because you're already inhibiting it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we fear it a lot. We know at some level that if I really allow myself to pursue this spontaneous awareness of self but this spontaneous instinct that it can also be really challenging mentally as well so i think there's a lot of there's a lot of good reasons to numb out of it all as well to just to counterpoint the thing i was saying earlier if that makes sense it does i think the the narrative is always geared towards the hero stories uh especially in social media in pretty much in all contexts but um, yeah yeah, I mean, I, there's so many contexts where it really, there, so much needs to happen before anything 
that is going to, let's say in a financial, from a financial viewpoint, before anything financial happens, Jesus Christ, there's a lot to happen before yeah. that. You know, if that's, yeah. if that's your goal, I guess that's why people you hear from any, any, any great artist or great musician. And the first thing, the first kind of one of the top levels of advice they'll always have is if you're in this for the money, you're going to struggle. Cause it's yeah. like, it, yeah. there's so much more to it than that. And to, and yeah, I guess once you open up Pandora's box a little bit, Steve, and you go, well, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to allow my filter to allow <clears throat> to be more aware of creative things, to start trying new things, to not presuppose that I should take this way to get to work with the good side of that can potentially become the, the, the increase ex exponential increase in uncertainty, which yeah. depending on how where your level of comfort is with discomfort, that can be very, very threatening in and of itself. Yeah. I think to be, especially people who've been locked down and things like that, who yeah. you know, maybe aren't leaving their houses as much as they have in the past. I think those things can creep up with us, but I also feel like that's another reason to just do things a little bit different because yeah. those things can like, as you also said, Steve, that it, there's, it's a construct, right? Anxiety is a construct. And if we let those things kind of continue to control what we're doing, they have a habit of getting out of control. That, yeah. That is the problem. If they're calling the shots, that's been yeah. my experience anyway. Well, I think there's, again, this is the, the cult of optimism, the downside of that, that there is one universal formula that we can apply to everyone to, to work in outside of our comfort zone um, or to, to do this stuff. And it's not everyone, I'm, I've spent years um, studying and, uh, and working with Gestalt psychology. One of the co-founders of Gestalt psychology, uh, Laura Pearl, said every patient needs their own brand new form of therapy. And what she was saying is there cannot be a body of therapy that applies to everyone. And that's why Gestalt is a very improvised, live, phenomenological therapy. And I think it's the same for creativity. Everyone needs their own unique formula. And by all means, read a book that says here's five things guaranteed to get you creative but it's not real if some of those appeal to you then fine but everyone needs their own thing i i call it it's finding our own unique sweet spot of discomfort and it's, it will be unique to you and mine will be unique to me where it becomes problematic is when we start judging our sweet spot of discomfort or i start judging yours and i think what's oh, mike you big wuss it's like this is what's the problem here or you start judging mine or i think yours is right mm -hmm. it's what is our own unique one and i often use the example i'm quite happy to walk onto a stage in front of a couple of thousand people and improvise a talk on something that i'm interested in now there's an adrenaline rush and all of that in there but i'm quite comfortable with that i'd be far more uncomfortable going to a dinner party of 10 people where i don't know anyone that that i mean that genuinely would be mm -hmm. excruciating for me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. other people would say of course not. It's the other way around. But that's my point. <laughs> that's my point. So it's unique for everyone. So by all means, read books and go on LinkedIn and read a lot of the garbage that's written on there and those things. But it's not real. It, the, these are lenses to help you make sense of what is your own unique experience. Mm. Um, and you can't get it wrong. If you take your own experience seriously, it can never be wrong because it's your experience. I love that. That's it. That's a great phrase. I like that a lot. Steve, I'm just running towards one more territory because I know I'm conscious we've taken up more time than I'd planned already. And I've got like all these questions I was thinking of and I'm like, you know what, I'm not going to try and 
move through too many territories. I'm really enjoying what we're talking about. And I can have you back on the show at some point. It'd be cool to kind of yeah. delve into other things another time. But <clears throat> we're talking about income, right? And I'm aware that one of the things that you've done to remain financially upright in, in your past has been to work with um, organize or to work with corporates with creating organizational developmental change, which, yeah. is, which is quite a mouthful. I love this because this is just another side to Steve Chapman, who just seems to have more sides than fuck, I don't know, a dodecahedron. But <laughs> can you please tell me the story about the bring your own buffet? Oh, right. Okay, that one. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like yeah. doing epic stuff listeners need to hear this. I, I love I love my yeah. ass off hearing this. So if you wouldn't mind. If I put that in a bit of context. So I think this is the, I think once we start to let go of one way of making a living, um, and I say that as a, as a white Western man living in the UK, and I'm really aware of the platform and privilege that comes with that um, as well. Um, so if I start to let go, there's a number of different ways that you can you can make a living without being a slave to it. Um, so I have patrons uh, that contribute towards supporting my work. So they want to support it. Um, there's bartering. So there's a brilliant stock company called Nine Meals from Anarchy. Just get a plug in from them. Um, and I do some art for them and they send me stock. I don't mean stock like in stock market. I mean, cooking stock. That was going to be. I just realized that sounded more impressive than it, than it was. Think, it's this like the dude who did the graffiti work for Facebook and then was a multi-billionaire. No, no, I'm talking about it's, it's vegan cooking stock. And so that. there's a, there's a bartering there as well. I also think in terms of foraging that earning your, your 10 pound is as important as earning your 10,000 pound or whatever. And then there's the transactional, which is sort of what the, what the, the corporate stuff is, is they pay me to come and do something for them. Mm -hmm. And I think having a mix of those, and there'd be hundreds of other models as well. It's, it's it took me so many years to realize that, that there isn't just that transactional model. And the advantage I have with corporates is I spent 20 years sort of in the corporate world, in the manufacturing sector, but you still sort of learn the language. So I have an ability to, to talk their language and like, seep in some weird stuff as well without them knowing you can dance um, the dance I, you're like it you're, you're like exactly you're, yeah okay got it great yeah and then throw in the odd weird dance move where uh like oh what was that <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> that strange pi pirouette thing there um <laughs> but where i've got to now with corporate work and this is relevant to to the buffet story is i and this isn't an arrogance thing it's just for my own mental health um, I will only work with organizations that I genuinely feel there is some hope of doing something differently. Because so many times organizations will say, right, we want a culture of creativity, but you can't change this, this, and this, and we want you to do it in this way. And it's like, well, no, that's not going to work. So hope um, in the sense, Steve, that by working together, you will be able to affect some sort of exactly, change exactly. for that company. Yeah. It's not just you wasting your time and getting paid. No, exactly. Because I can't... It would, and this is where don't anyone listen to what I'm saying if you want to run a successful business because it's, none of this works. Um, but it doesn't feel ethical for me to sell something to a company that I don't think is going to make any difference whatsoever. Um, and it'd be so easy to go in and go right. I'm going to run. I'm going to run a 
thousand people creativity workshop that's going to change your company forever. And they'll go, yeah, and I'll pay loads of money for that. I don't believe that will work. Um, so it's where there's some particular conditions where I like to work in organizations. Um, one is, can I subvert the processes that are designed to keep everything the same? And quite often the procurement process of how you actually get into an organization, I understand the importance of that, but it is also designed to keep everything the same. So with this organization, um, the way in was someone that worked in that organization, um, which was a, a food retail company in the UK. They came to a talk that I did and they went, ah, oh, really love what you say. It's a talk about culture change or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, will you come and do some work with us? And it was, yeah, well, if we can have it as a partnership where we, we're coming up with a plan and then we're seeing what happens and then we're improvising and coming up with a plan and seeing what happens, then yes, I definitely do it. And this person had enough of a budget and enough of an influence that we could start some small scale experimental work without having to go through all the channels. So we started it without the board knowing about it, which she wasn't doing anything wrong. And so I just started running some um, workshops um, just around liberating people from fixed ways of thinking, some like encouraging experimentation, encouraging prototyping. Um, and then there'd be workshops and then we'd do ex like real experiments with real products and real customers. And then we'd do some like action learning, peer group learning. So all of these things going on. And that was going on for about a year and some of it died and some people hated it. Some people loved it. And then some, some amazing projects came out of it. And I think that's another important thing is everything's not going to be successful. Um, everyone's not going to love it. If everyone loves it, you, it, nothing's different because you've just done more of the same. And after about a year or so, the, the board suddenly got interested and said, oh, what's going on over there? That looks that sounds like some really interesting stuff going on, which is a great thing versus going the traditional route where it would have to be to do a presentation to the board to say, this is what we're going to do and try and convince them it's a good idea. So we've sort of done that backwards. And they said, can you come and do a presentation? And so I said, well, anyway. yeah, a presentation of what it's all about. Because again, I, I, I come at that with compassion. You, you, we're laughing at the ludicrousy of it, but it's like, okay, well, this is the way things are done. And I said, I said, the best way, I said, no, I, we could do that. Best way for you to fully understand it is you come and join us. You come and play with us for half a day. And um, they said, yes, or my, my, inter my, the, client inside was able to persuade them and i think i got four and a half hours with them one day and the idea was we were going to do some experiments we we're going to do some some strange stuff the people that i'd been working with from lie down the organization would come in and we'd be all doing it together and that breaks down hierarchy and all of those things then two weeks before i got the email saying um this has been reduced from four and a half hours to two hours which is, this always happens and it's just like <laughs> i don't buy the thing that we're too busy it's this just isn't important to you. That's that's what it is. Other things are more important than this. Um, and so I was thinking, well, I'm not sure what we can do. And then I got another email saying, and in those two hours, they have to take a lunch break. <laughs> and it, that, I remember at that point, there were some choice words I used when I read the email. And it's just like, I've got a choice here. It's either I water it down and just go against my instincts, or I tell them, no, we can't do anything. Forget it. And throw my toys out the pram. This is where the improviser's mindset, and and uh, when you spoke with Dave Rakowski, he, he sort of touched on the, some of these ideas of working with what is. The improviser's mindset is saying, well, what is the offer here? What is the invitation here? 
Like I was saying earlier on, these creative invitations are around us all the time. And I tuned into that and it's all the offer here. The invitation is lunch. These busy people need to eat. I need to resolve the problem of lunch rather than think of lunch as, as the problem. And so I told my client what I was going to do and it horrified her, but I did it. She said, okay. And so I wrote to all the board, I emailed them all and said, um, Wednesday's session is going to be a bring your own buffet. I would like to bring some interesting foods to share with your friends and deliberately use that language. So it's buffet, interesting foods, friends, um, and sent it out. And this like, like I say, my client was going, you can't ask them to do this. You can't ask them. I said, well, if they, if they resist then fire me, like, I don't work for the organization. I'd get, I got loads of emails from PAs of these important people saying, well, does, does Bob need to bring anything? Which is really code for Bob's really important. And we normally look after Bob and it's, well, yeah, if Bob wants to eat, he needs to bring something. And then other people in the organization were saying, well, it's been nice working with you. Good luck. Yeah. It's um, never mind. Day. <laughs> and it's just like, it's like I was going to the executioner and it, it's crazy. This is asking human being adult human beings to bring sustenance <laughs> to maintain life <laughs> and they're a food company um so this was fascinating so on the day i got there early, and i'm thinking i don't know what's going to happen here i really don't know what's going to happen um i had some idea of some things that we might do then a load of pas came in with trays of sandwiches and stuff which they clearly ordered um <laughs> Uh, someone else came in, someone had made um, some plantains at home and someone else brought in something else they'd made at home. Uh, so I remember one guy coming in looking really awkward and he uh, like a sandwich or something like that. <laughs> the, the, the CEO came in and said, what's all that? I didn't know anything about this. And he'd been protected from it. But the thing that we then did is we just sat down for those two hours and ate lunch and spoke about the experience of being asked to bring lunch. Now, was that an intervention to support an innovation program? Yes and no. Um, but what happened through that is there's a number of spontaneous realizations, like the CEO saying, well, what else don't I know about? <laughs> what else do you protect me from? A number of the groups saying, are we that scary? That our people thought if you asked us to bring lunch, we would fire you. <laughs> um, if they're that scared, of someone that doesn't work for the company asking us to bring lunch, how on earth are they ever going to do anything creative in this organization? And then some of the board are saying, this is ridiculous. We're busy people. We shouldn't be asked to bring lunch and all, all of that stuff. So it's a real mix, but it became a real intense pivotal moment in that project that I could never have designed. And I could probably never do again. The, the danger with, with stories like this is people go, ah, that's the lunch intervention. We need to use that. And that's, that's a way to do it. It just, it was in that moment. So that's that's the way I like to work in organisations. It is an improvise. It is an improvisation. There's an intention, but you're able to adapt and, and use use things. Um, and then that set that whole project off in a couple of different streams that were both <laughs> successful or pointless and didn't work. No, it's but just, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> a great story. I, I love that. I just think it's it's so interesting. I, I, I can just, you know, I've been in roles where I could see how it would just seem so intimidating to ask the CEO to lunch. Yeah. And 
And then in hindsight, thinking about it, it's like, well, we all work in the same building. You know, yeah. we all eat lunch at the same time. Why is it so bloody strange that they join you for lunch or even bring their yeah. own lunch? <laughs> this, is, this is the point is it starts to bring awareness to the fact that all of these patterns of power and status, all these dynamics are social constructions. They're not real. I, I love it when I see someone that's, that, that's dressed up really smart and is obviously in a senior role on the London Underground. They're the same as everyone else. They get they get no extra privileges whatsoever. No, and it just starts to <laughs> it just starts to show that none of this is real. This is choice. And and I always say an org chart, like a hierarchy chart, is a serving suggestion for how we might interact around here. It's not real. Um, what is real is a perceived. Um, dynamics of domination and submission and relative need and someone needs someone more than someone needs someone else but we sort of have choice in that difficult choices this is how uprisings happen this is how revolutions happen by thinking we're no longer going to act into these suggested power dynamics mm. and that's what this work does this is the stuff i teach at the business schools and the master's programs is is really that dynamic relational spontaneous nature of what we call culture that it isn't as static as as we think it is and that's that's what this that's what this does really um and that's that that is what lies at the heart of change i think it is shining a, shining a deeper awareness on that spontaneous unpredictable paradoxical confusing nature of all things and just by and we can we can just choose to ignore that or deny it um but everything starts to shift when we when we see it a different way i've got a um i've got a quote a nietzsche quote on my wall um and it's the only nietzsche quote i've got on my wall just in case you think it's full of nietzsche Covered. quotes <laughs> yeah um and it's the only one i can remember but i've still got it written up and this i think this sums up my philosophy and all of this work so nietzsche said learning to see the world as strange makes us unhome in the everyday and thereby restores it as a potential place of wonder I'll say that again. Mm. Learning to see the world as strange makes us unhome in the everyday and thereby restores it as a potential place of wonder. So I think experiencing strange, experiencing discomfort, experiencing confusion, if we don't resist it, it's an invitation to wonder, to go, mm. what, what, is, what the hell is going on? Isn't that amazing that we don't know? Um, and that, that's what our human superpower is, I think, that ability to wonder. Man, I, I, I'm super inspired by by everything you've said, Steve. I've listened to a couple of your podcasts with people, and I just think that it's it's a really valuable thing to anyone to start experimenting with a little bit of strangeness. You know, yeah. I think it's a it's a wonderful thing. And and my first foray into it, well my first recent foray into it will be to take my nephew and niece and uh, start chucking up not lost cat posters and see where yeah. that leads to <laughs> hopefully yeah. not to me ending up in jail but yeah you know either way it's going to make a great podcast well you can use them as the excuse and say oh it was them it's the <laughs> rest assured steve well, that's already the plan mate Don't yeah exactly <laughs> you, you you're saying as if it was some sort of um good good good, good, good uncle mike adult road role model mike and it's no that they're, they're the four guys for this every uh, every smart criminal has a scapegoat 
So exactly. Don't worry about and that. And I love it that they might just get three of them and put them next to each other in one place. That There's might a good be chance the child's of that. choice. Who knows? And it's that, that needs to be okay. Yeah. Steve, it's been absolutely wonderful having you on today. I've I've got so many more different paths I'd like to go down. So if you, if you'd like to down the track, maybe sooner rather than later, I'd love to have you on again and maybe explore a few more uh, bits and bobs together. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just that's an awesome way to finish up my day, and I hope it's been a nice way to start yours. It certainly has. I'm gonna go in and see what the dog's eaten that she shouldn't have done there. <laughs> But no, thank you for having me. It's been lovely. It's one of those when you suddenly think, wow, time's gone really quickly. That's a good sign we've been in some sort of creative flow together. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. You can find all the latest happenings on the website, doingepicstuff.com or our Instagram, Instagram forward slash doingepicstuff. We out.